I remember, I remember times, and you know, I'm not going to put anybody, you know, throw anybody. I mean, there was a time that I played a game with a guy that was drunk in the huddle. Yeah, uh, there was a time that a guy showed up, you know, late to a game in the NFL. You need to be there two hours, two hours and fifteen minutes ahead of time, and uh, and he showed up, yeah, you know, under an hour before the game, and he started. Now those are. Those are weird things. Now that's tough. Uh, I'm sorry, book, but I, I'm sorry. I, I can't. I got to go back to the drunk guy in the huddle. Did everybody know the guy was drunk? Did the staff know, or were you just like, "Whoa, dude, you know, you smell like rumplements." I'm not sure if the staff knew, but I think the guy was like, you know, that was kind of his normal. So I mean, I mean, he was drunk and had close to 200 yards receiving. Now, <laughs> so it was crazy. Okay, we can rule out the tackles and guards uh, on this one. Today, we are loaded the news of Dak Prescott's contract, what it really means, because I'm going to set everybody straight on this, and we're going to talk to John Kitna, who is Dak's quarterback coach and three-point legend Tim Legler on today's NBA and a little bit on his career as well. Loaded today. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value, Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. So here's the headline. Dak Prescott, four-year contract, $160 million, $126 million guaranteed. Let's give you some more money so you understand it. So four years, $160. He gets $75 million Guaranteed in that first year. So that's $75 million in cash. Not a bag, but you understand what I'm saying. If you add that to his franchise tag that he just played on for $31.4 million, Dak in a 15-month stretch is going to take home over $106 million. Now, let's back up because a lot of people were really worried for a really long time about Dak Prescott's contract. Now, I had told you here on this podcast in late 2019 that Dak had turned down an offer. So a lot of people are like, what's Dallas's problem? How come they don't believe in him? What's Jerry Jones doing? What's Steven Jones doing? How come this guy, how come they can't work it out with Dak? They had made him a really good offer. Dak and his agents wanted a better one and they were rewarded for waiting that out because the deal, when I told you about it at the end of 19 was a four-year deal 
it was around 35 million. So I think we're looking at 140 million total. Instead, he gets 160 million total. I think back then it was around $100 million in guarantees. You can go back and look all this stuff up because people started talking about what he actually had turned down. And then there were some gigantic numbers that were rumored that I'm not even sure were true. But it was, to my understanding then, and I made a couple calls on this this morning just to double check, it was about four years, $140 million at the end of 19. That would have made his average annual salary, easy math here, $35 million a year, which would have put him at like one or two average annual salary of 2019. So Dallas was going to pay him. There was an extra year stuff that was going on that they were complaining about. You know, Dak wanted to be shorter. Dallas wanted to be longer. Of course, they wanted more guarantees. And it was Dak and his representation's rights, it was their right to turn this thing down. By the way, Dak also got a no-trade clause in this. And if you really want to break down the current deal, we can even hammer away some more points in that it's kind of a three-year deal, and then when that money's up, they're going to hit the table again, and Dak is going to get paid. But what definitely bothers me was that when Dak wasn't getting paid, it was what's wrong with Dallas. And then let's face it, there was some, there was some stuff thrown around there. It's like, why is Jared Goff getting all of this money and Dak can't get paid? Dak didn't get a deal done because of his demands and because of his patience. And it paid off. And it paid off a year after, not even a full year after, a year after it was an injury where people were like, oh, you franchise tag him and this is what happens. What? You get $160 million in contract? So the injury didn't mean anything. The reason it took this long only meant that Dak wanted more and then Dak got it. Now, on the Ezekiel Elliott deal, it was understood that around the league, they were like, look, Zeke's going to get his money because it's Jerry Jones. Jerry's just going to do it. You shouldn't be paying running backs this much. I don't want to argue exceptions of the time the running backs have actually been pretty good. The Dalvin Cook deal looks all right. Christian McCaffrey, we'll see. Not early returns, but you don't write it off. But the Ezekiel Elliott one, so far, that hasn't worked. It hasn't worked, and it's not going to be a contract. I doubt anyone will say at the end of the Ezekiel Elliott contract, psyched he did that. But if you're an agent for Dak and you're looking at the fact that Jerry kind of caved on that one, when I don't think Zeke would have gotten that from like 27 other teams, maybe 30 teams, you look at that whole combination of facts, you're like, look, we could probably wait this thing out because the franchise tag is so punitive and the cap number so high. If they do this to you again, then maybe they're going to end up having to come up with some sort of deal. So, you know, look, if they're offering four for 140 in 2019, that's not some horrible offer. And that's why the entire time when people were trying to act like it was something that was against Dak, it never really made any sense to me because they weren't paying attention to the facts that slowly trickled out about the deal that he actually turned down in the first place. It also reminds me a little bit of the Kirk Cousins deal. Kirk Cousins, over a four-year stretch now, has made $118 million. You want to know why that started? because he kept getting franchised and then was like, all right, fine, Washington, you won't unpay me. I'm going to go to Minnesota. Then Minnesota gave him three years that were fully guaranteed. And then they had to pay him again just to lower the cap number when they probably didn't even want to do that. Of all the heat the Washington football team takes, one of the weird things that I think actually, and it didn't work out for him, but I always kind of respected was, yeah, we know we're supposed to just pay any starter that's going to be a starter over a five-year stretch. We're just supposed to give him at least $30 million a year. Yeah, we don't think Kirk's that good. So what do you want to do it? So we'll give you a year, and then we'll franchise you, and then we'll move on. And if Minnesota, who's desperate, needs a quarterback who can at least do the job, I'm not saying he's terrible, but I don't think he gets you to that next level, you go ahead and pay him 90-something million. And so that was new. A lot of this stuff becomes new every year because it's newer. And I know that sounds simple, but that's the whole point. It's like, so wait, Dak got this. Well, who's next? Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Baker Mayfield. Uh, 
I still would, wouldn't be in a huge hurry to give Baker Mayfield $100 million guaranteed. But the same reason why Jared Goff got his money. Now, look, the Rams love paying everybody, and they like paying people like earlier than they have to. But it's a really good organization for the most part. I just don't understand that part of it. But a lot of it just comes up to like, hey, how come this quarterback's making this? Well, his deal was up, and this is what he makes. And if you're playing in three years when your deal is up and you're still really good, this is what you're going to make. So that's all it was. And granted, it's the Cowboys. There's a lot of people out there saying a lot of stuff about what it was or it wasn't. It was really simple. He was offered a pretty good deal. He waited it out. He was tagged, and then he was rewarded. And we can talk about TV money on this. We're like, oh, Jerry knows the TV deal is going to be awesome. I know the fucking TV deal is going to be awesome. All right? All of us should know this. You can complain about traditional ratings and, oh, that's under the decline, that's under the decline. They're still the best beach house in a bad real estate market. And right now, whatever traditional ratings are doing all over the place, the NFL will still have the highest number of live audience eyeballs on it, more so than any other product. And that's why everybody's going to keep paying. I don't know what the point of no return is. I think sometimes networks just pay for it, knowing they're not necessarily making a ton of money on it, but that way they can have somebody read NCIS promos seven times a game. So to say, well, Jerry knows the TV's money. Everybody knows the TV money is coming. And by the way, the way this deal works out, kind of three years really and not even the four, then Dak can go back to the bargaining table. And if he doesn't get paid, if he's as good as he's been, which is really good, and then the whole talk of like, oh, this means it's a Super Bowl. No, this just means he got a huge race. Like, you know, you could you could sit there and complain like, oh, well, this guy get paid. this, So this guy needs to get a Super Bowl. I don't understand any of that stuff. Now, now here's where my contract was up. I was due. I'm going to play for a long time. I'm pretty good. And guess what? Now I'm going to get paid. Oh, now I'm going to show up earlier on Monday? Like, now I got to really care? Now I got to do interviews? And I'm like, now it's definitely about a Super Bowl. I don't ever understand any of that stuff because the pressure. So what happens when Dak gets surpassed by five other guys in the next two years? Then Dak doesn't have to win a Super Bowl as badly because he doesn't have the second highest average annual salary like he does behind Patrick Mahomes right now. The contract stuff, we're bad at it, folks. We're really bad. And I'm trying to help as much as I possibly can, but it never seems to be working. John Kitna of Impelt and I once joked the OG QB backup. Um, I don't know. Probably won't use that with him. But he played in the league from 97 to 2011. He's got an incredible stories with the Cowboys coaching staff there with Dak Prescott. And now he's coaching high school football down in Burleson. So let's catch up with John Kitna. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first, you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now, by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com.
This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season, throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. All right, so before we get to all the, the stuff, there's actually some cool newsy stuff in here as well. You're uh, running things down in Burleson. Do the parents leave you alone with your resume or is it the same stuff that I hear from all my other buddies that coach high school sports? <laughs> no, they don't leave us alone. <laughs> you know, they, you know, I, I'm not sure how I even get the job because there's so many great coaches in the stands, but that's just part of it. Give me, give me an example. Like, is there ever a time, and I know you probably, you know, you don't want to go too into it and call anybody out, but, but is there ever a time you have to remind somebody like, Hey, you know, I did, I did play in the league for a long time here. You know, uh, when I moved to Texas and I took a job at, uh, at Waxahachie High School, I met with all the coaches and uh, that were on staff already there. You know, you're just trying to figure it out. You just got there. And, you know, you're just being in the NFL every year is a new team. So you just you're very malleable and you know that you're going to have to uh, make things work with different different types of people. Um, but there was one guy in particular that sat in the back and I talked about my coaching philosophy and talked about how I wanted to meet with all the coaches and talked about how, I was, you know, excited to be there and wanted to, you know, keep as many guys as I could. And one guy sat in the back like this. His arms up. And he says, at the end of it, I said, you got any questions? And he goes, what makes you think you can coach Texas high school F in football? And I just laugh, man. Um, but there's a lot of pride down here, and and uh, and I love that part of it. Um, and and there's a lot of you know uh, coaches that pay their dues, so I get it. But um, you know, there's some funny things that happen all the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I had a I had a buddy who's a real accomplished baseball player, and you know, he, he had all sorts of history. I mean, he's a guy you'd know, and then. He started coaching high school down in the South. And I was like, how is it? He's like, it's great, except for the parents. And he quit. <laughs> you know, after a couple of years, he's like, I don't need this. Um, honestly, my parents, honestly, my parents have been, you know, pretty good wherever I've been. I try to keep good communication with them. But uh, every now and then you run into somebody that just, you know, doesn't agree yeah. with you. But that's right. life. No, I get it. Um, this We had set this up and then the DAC news comes out last night. Huge contract. You know, Dak, you were on the staff, the QB coach just a couple years ago. Give me the best breakdown of Dak, the guy, the player, what you see your year with him. Yeah, um, and we talked about this a lot of times in, in our staff meetings and, and uh, debrief meetings after games or whatever it was. Um, you know, he's a top five quarterback in the league, and uh, his production says that he gets better every year. Um, but that's just the stuff on the field. Off the field, what he brings, his leadership is off the charts. From the weight room to the meeting room to the cafeteria to um, being the voice of the team, being the face of the team to um, 
making sure that uh, he touches base with all the different uh, entities that come along with a football program uh, in the NFL. So he's just, he's everything you could ask for and more. Uh, his mindset is just different. Uh, it's just very hard to find people that wake up every day and go, how can I get better? And, uh, what you- and that's who he is in everything that he does. When you say top five quarterback, I think some would listen to this and go, okay, wait a minute. And then like, the numbers are huge, but how yeah. do you see that? Like, how, how do you separate the guys at the very top versus the other guys that are putting up big numbers are going to be starters for a bunch of years? But what separates Dak from that group, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think you definitely factor in age. You know, what, what, what age group are we talking about here? You know, nobody's being disrespectful of certain people. But when you look at everything that he's done since the time that he took over, you know, the numbers back it up. And I'm not going to argue with people. Oh, no, he's not the top five. He's top ten. Okay. <laughs> Fine. If that's what you want to say. But I just have been around it and seen it. Uh, his mindset is different. He's 27 years old. He's going to play for a long time because he knows how to take care of his body. And, uh, and uh, he works his tail off. And so uh, I just I watched the way that that he approaches his craft day in and day out. And then, then to see the production, it's one thing to put the work in, but then to put the work in and see the production, uh, continually get better. And and for him to, he's so self-aware of his weaknesses, um, that he just, he he evaluates them. He's not afraid of them. He doesn't run from them. He's not afraid of coaching. He loves being coached hard. And so he tries to take any weaknesses and turn it into strengths. And, uh, and so he's just he's a, he's a rapidly ascending player. When you watch, you know, I'm always talking. You know, Dilfer comes on all the time. It came close with him over the years, and I'm always just just hammering away at you know, teach us more about the difference between hey, this guy is putting up those numbers, but here are the, where the limitations are. Here's on third and seven where he's going to be you know in front of the sticks all the time. What do you look for? when you're trying to figure out like the guys that not only have the arm strength that can make all the throws, but game time situation, you know, step their game up as opposed to, Hey, you know, I had three touchdowns, 350 yards and we lost again. Right. I mean, part of that's, you know, you have to be on the right team in the right program. And, uh, and so, yeah, I don't care how good you are. Um, if you can't stop people from scoring on defense or, uh, you can't protect the quarterback, any quarterback is going to struggle. Period. And, uh, and and so, you know, but but for Dak, you know, he's had such a great awareness of when you call a play, how are we trying to attack the, the defense? And he rarely is going to, uh, uh, you know, work outside the system. He's going to he's going to stay within the system. Um, but then when plays break down, he has the ability to mo- both make plays running and throwing the ball on the move and breaking the pocket. and and doing those things. He has great play strength. He can get knocked off his spot and, and still be strong enough to, to make throws. He's incredibly accurate. I think two years ago, the year that I was coaching, I'm, I'm pretty sure he set like a record that year. You know, it's one of those uh, analytics things, but for his completion percentage to guys that uh, you know, had a low completion or low completion rate in terms of them being open. I mean, it was, it was off the charts. And uh, he went from, the year before that, getting sacked somewhere in the 50s, I think, to, you know, under 20 that year or right around 20 that year, you know, because it was important to to the team and to the program. So he just kind of does all those things, but 
he's able to make make the plays when they're there, but also make plays when they're off schedule. And uh, and he rarely turns the football over. You were on the staff, and then you know you ended your career there as well. Yeah. What was the Cowboy experience like for you after stops other places? How yeah, different is it? Blessing. I mean, when you play in a league, uh, you play football in the NFL, getting a chance to play for the Cowboys is a big deal. When you play baseball, getting a chance to play for the Yankees is a big deal. Uh, you know, when you, when you play rugby, getting to play for the All, Black, All Blacks is a big deal. There we go. So uh, the, the experience was unbelievable. I'll never forget, you know, grandmas coming up to me in public. I'm the backup quarterback. And they know who I am. They're grandmas. You know, they they eat, sleep, and breathe it down here. Uh, you know, they, they're they still really pissed about Tom Landry still. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's just, it's a different culture. Um, and, and it's a ton of fun. Uh, you make some, some great connections with people that last a lifetime um, because of how, how deeply people feel about the Cowboys. But being in that locker room, being with, with Jason Garrett and his staff uh, was an incredible blessing for me. Let's go back um, to something that I want to talk to you about because, you know, you're in Cincinnati and you put it together. You know, after getting your career started a little bit later in Seattle, you end up in Cincinnati. You have this incredible season. They draft Carson Palmer. I know you've talked about this a bunch, but we're seeing now a, a momentum towards some quarterbacks calling their shot, whether it's Russell, Russell Wilson clearly flirting with the idea of wanting to move on and Deshaun Watson, um, who I think more people kind of go like, I kind of understand where he's coming from. So there's kind of two parts of this where in that moment, you have this great year, they pick Palmer and you say, no, I'm going to stay here to help this guy. I don't know that many people would do that. I definitely don't think many people would do that today. So how were you able to do that? Well, I think first of all, is my faith. Um, you know, that's the biggest thing for me is just knowing that Nothing happens without it being filtered um, through the hand of God in my life. And so if God wanted me to be the quarterback there, I would have been the quarterback there. And, and I think there's great purpose there. The second thing is I, I, I like Carson Palmer as a person. And then the third thing is we had adopted uh, a couple of my cousins. And, uh, and one of them was going to be a senior. That was going to be his senior year coming up the next year. And, uh, and he's a pretty good athlete and stuff like that. We just felt like it would be detrimental. To, to up and move him at that point for him. And so it made all the sense in the world for us uh, in, in those three aspects to stay put. And, uh, and I'm thankful that we did love Cincinnati. I got to meet, you know, my wife, my family, we got to meet some of our best friends in the world out there. And then, you know, getting to, to forge that relationship with Carson Palmer for three years, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And so I just think there's more important things than football in life. And that, you know, probably meant that, I didn't quite have the career that maybe I could have had, but uh, I'm thankful that I'm going on my you know 27th year of marriage and my kids are thriving and, and all that stuff. That's that's important to me, and uh, and my faith is important to me. Now, maybe before, because I do know your story, um, would it be safe to say that maybe college John Kitna would have not handled the Carson Palmer draft pick as well? <laughs> There's no question. Uh, Pre-1993, John Kitna uh, would have probably fought somebody, uh, you know, and but. Yeah, two different people, two completely different people, pre-1993 and post-1993. Because it's, you know, I, I've heard the stories from Aaron Rodgers where he was like, yeah, Favre didn't have any time for me. You know, that, that right. there's no there's no love there. And I can I can understand it as the vet. You know, I worked with Danny Cannell for a long time. And I would like be like, hey, yeah. tell me who 
who was the guy when you came in that put your armor in? Canel will joke and be like, well, none of the starters were ever that threatened by me towards the end. So they were best friends. We'd be golfing because they just weren't that worried about it. How important is that where that relationship is actually real and there is support for a position that's, look, the hardest position to play in in team sports? Yeah, man, I was fortunate too. I had John Freeze and then then Warren Moon, you know, for the first three years of my career that taught me a lot, both on the field and off the field. And I was thankful for that. And then, you know, so then you kind of try to pay it forward that way. Um, And then, you know, with Carson and, and, uh, you know, that, that situation, it was just really comes down to what, what I believe in. I think the Bible says, uh, says it best. Jesus said, you know, whoever wants to be the greatest would be the greatest servant. And I think there's, there's, there's value in being a servant and being, being second. Um, and, and I get, I think that's why I'm a coach. I get great joy in seeing others achieve and, and knowing that I had a small part of that. Um, I, I get more joy out of that than, my own accomplishments. And so it just makes it fun. Uh, and in, in, in a quarterback room in the NFL, I, I just, it's miserable to be, have a lot of tension in your quarterback room because you're going to be, you're living with those guys. And so and it's just a choice. I think people have to make, but again, some people make the other choice and, and, uh, and, and they, it drives them to greatness. It just wasn't the way I wanted to live my life. Still isn't. You're close with Carson, as you mentioned, and, and you, you just loved him immediately. You've said you think he's the most talented guy you ever played with. Is that fair? Yeah. At quarterback. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, he's right there, him and Warren Moon, for sure. You know, Warren was 40 at the time. So, but yeah, the talent off the charts. So when Carson, and I don't know if there was a lot of dialogue here or there, but when he says, and I remember I was on the air then, it's like, whoa, this guy's actually threatening, like, he's just not going to play anymore. I was like, wait a minute, what? And it ends up working out. He gets to Oakland, and then it really works out once he gets to Arizona. Did you talk to him during that time of like what you're doing, the significance of what you're doing, and what you could be sacrificing because you want away from this one organization so badly? Yeah, we didn't talk. I don't, you know, we didn't talk during that window of time, but we we talked a lot in those three years and just the things that we saw and experienced. And and uh, you know, for him, it was just it was a breaking point uh, for him. And you know, he tells a story. Uh, you know, really well. And I, I don't want to try to tell it his way, but there were some things that just along the way, he felt like the trust was broken and, and it was not going to come back. And so uh, he had to put a foot, foot in the ground uh, in terms of just for him, in terms of just, uh, you know, who he is and, 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 and enough was enough. Is it that bad back then? You know, I've heard stories about like they don't put any money into the scouting staff and facility and all that kind of stuff. Like I imagine most of that stuff's up to date somewhat. But was it was it really that bad being a Cincinnati Bengal at the beginning of the century? I guess I would say or last decade. And there were some things that were like, you know, I, I mean, like it was, what? It was hard to believe. Some, you know, I mean, I'm. Re- <laughs> that's a great question. I remember, I remember times, and you know, I'm not going to put anybody, you know, throw anybody. I mean, there was a time that I played a game with a guy that was drunk in the huddle. Yeah, uh, there was a time that a guy showed up, you know, late to a game in the NFL. You need to be there two hours, two hours and fifteen minutes ahead of time, and uh, and he showed up, yeah, you know, under an hour before the game, and he started. Now those are. Those are weird things now. That's tough. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't. I got to go back to the drunk guy in the huddle. Did everybody know the guy was drunk? Did the staff know, or were you just like, "Whoa, dude! You know, you smell like rumplements." I'm not sure if the staff knew, but I think the guy was like, you know, that was kind of his normal. So, I mean, I mean, he was drunk and had close to 200 yards receiving now. <laughs> so, it was crazy. Okay, we can rule out the tackles and guards uh, on this one. I know uh, how much you're at peace with everything. You know, I, I, it was I was watching a bunch of videos, and it was uh, it was cool. It was really cool to see you kind of go through it all. Do do younger kids connect you? I'm sure in Texas, in certain you know communities, religion's such a big part of it. So maybe it, it it doesn't feel like oh, it's this old guy trying to tell me all this stuff. But how do how do the kids connect with you and in, in some of the stuff that you, the messages you're trying to get across? Uh, I mean. I, I'm just a coach to them at the end of the day. And, you know, they kind of know I played in the NFL, but none of them, you know, nobody saw that. <laughs> um, and I'd, I'd have to pull clips up and then they would laugh at me because of the bad, you know, video and, and stuff like that. But um, but really, I'm just coach. And and I've, I've just had the greatest time coaching down here. I love it. Uh, getting a chance to see young men just grow uh, both physically and uh, in their character. We, we focus a lot on character here. We believe we're partners with their parents in training manhood in them and, and what it means to be a real man. And so uh, it's, it's a ton of fun. Is there, is there guys along the way that man, they don't really like the program? Yeah, that's how it is. Um, but the vast majority uh, that I get to stay in touch with and whether it's from Washington or Texas or Arizona and back to Texas. I mean, it's just been a blessing. And so we really enjoy what we do. Well, we'll be rooting for you. All right. Cause I know how happy Dilfer is, you know, he and I are pretty close and yeah. you know, he's, he's a lot, a lot of the stuff that he'll talk to me about and be like, look, this is just where I needed to be right now in life and helping yeah. others and everything. And I, I'll tell people about this all the time. There, there's a calm, there's a, there's a look in the faces of you guys that are helping younger people that, I'm envious of, and I don't, I, I think it's real. You know, when I see it on you guys, I'm like, man, there's something about these guys who are just like, look, this is my purpose right now. And this is what I'm doing. Yeah. So uh, again, rooting for you. And thanks for the time. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up no matter what, because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice-cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. He's one of the best analysts going when it comes to the NBA. ESPN's Tim Legler, but also the 96 three-point shooting champ. So, I don't know. Do, when you watch it, do you get sentimental? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it was a... It was, you know, an incredible experience to go through it. Um, and, and like, for me, like that was such a defining moment, Ryan, because, you know, I, I took a different path. You know, I was a mid-major college guy, undrafted, fought through the CBA, played in Europe. I mean, you name it, I, I did it. 10-day uh, contracts, the whole bit. And then finally, like I had good year in Dallas, good year in Golden State. And then, but then I was a free agent. I went to Washington. That was my first year there. 
So that was like my, my moment, like on a national stage against the best shooters in the world and me believing I was the best shooter in the world. It's like, man, I'm in this competition that I watched as a kid, my Larry Bird, my idol won this thing three times. I got a chance to like put my name on the same list that his name is on. Like it just, the whole thing seems surreal in the moment. I was confident that I could win it. And, uh, and I did. So yeah, I watch it every year and I flash back to what that was like at that time. My daughter was born a week before I, my oldest, my first child was born a week before I won that competition. So you talk about it, an incredible like week of my life. Like, you know, so every year I watch it and yes, I absolutely take my mind back to that time. So I watched it this morning. You hit nine out of 10 money balls, the first two rounds. And there's a couple things that jump out. Juwan Howard going crazy for you <laughs> is so, so cool. And I'll admit, like, I- I've got to know you a while. I- I'd like to consider you somebody I, you know, I know casually here. You look nervous as shit. Were you, were you, were you freaking out a little bit, even though you were hitting everything? So no, I, I, here's, uh, here's the honest truth. I was, I was in the locker room getting ready to go out there and uh, the, they had some balls back there, like you know, sample type balls, that, the same ones we were going to use. And they were freaking brand new out of the box. And I'm picking these balls up and I'm like, these things are so slick. And that's when I started getting a little bit nervous because I'm thinking like, I hate more than anything shooting with like a new basketball. I'm like, why are they giving us these baskets? Especially the money ball had like an extra layer of coating on it. And I'm going, what is the deal? Why in the world would you give these balls to like in an event when you want to impress the world and you're going to give people these bricks to throw up there? So I'm back there kind of sweating that out. When I got out on the court to warm up, um, I started shooting and I, I got into a great rhythm and I was super confident when, you know, now we go over to the bench, they're going to do introductions. And I was the first, I was, I drew number one in the, in the drawing. I was going to be the first shooter. Um, like I was so glad for that cause I didn't have to sit there for 20, 30 minutes, you know, during commercial breaks and you know, all those guys that had to go sit, I thought it was an advantage that I got to go for warm up introduction and now shoot. And, and I, I was very, very confident. So to answer your question, I was nervous before, but in an area no one would see that. So by the time, whatever you saw on TV, no, honestly, I was not nervous. I think what maybe you were reading was how bad I wanted it. I yeah, wanted you know it probably what? Probably more than anybody there. Okay, yeah, because I, I felt bad the way I set that up. You just had this look on your face. I'm like, is that is he nervous there? Because you're around, and it's all the dudes going nuts and clowning on everybody oh, by, on the sideline. Uh, yeah, and by the way, the John Howard thing, I didn't know that that happened until – I saw a replay of it like the next day. And I was, I thought that was the coolest thing ever because he, if you look at the clip, he literally turns, I think it's Reggie Miller and he turns and he goes, give me my money. Give me my money. Cause it was like, he was betting like on me, like, you know, my teammate was betting on me. And then he's going up to these guys, like trying to collect right there. I, I, so it's like one of the great clips. Um, it was a great weekend for our organization because Jawan played in his only all-star game. I, won the three-point contest and Rasheed Wallace hit the game-winning shot in the rookie sophomore challenge so like for Washington to have three guys represent all-star weekend it might be the best all-star weekend representation that the organization's ever had I didn't even think of that and then of course that team went on to win multiple championships built around Weber and all those guys I'm just kidding um because everybody was so (laughs) excited about that team um 
in that that bull series. Like I remember being in college and going, oh, look out, you know, and, and we've made that mistake a million times of being like, man, just them being competitive, like this is the next team. And then there's so many times when it's not the next team. Hey, listen, th- listen to what we did. People, this is going to blow people's mind on what we did right around that time because you're 100% right. We took the Bulls. It was a best of five. We got swept every game. It was a one-possession game with a minute to play. Yeah. And, and after the series was over, Jordan even said, that's the next team to look out for in the Eastern Conference. Now, we had a front line at that time of Chris Webber, Jawan Howard, Ben Wallace, uh, George Mirasan and Rashid. That was our front line. And you know what we decided to do? The geniuses in the front office. We're going to go ahead and trade Weber, Ben Wallace, and Rashid Wallace. And the return on that was two young bigs for Weber and Rashid. We got back Rod Strickland and Mitch Richmond. And, and Strick still had some really good years. And then Mitch, was, Mitch Richmond was at the end of his career. So two young bigs for two older guards, that never seems to work out great. And then Ben Wallace for Isaac Austin. And now at the time we had Ben Wallace, we didn't even know what they had. They had this dude, he drove up, paid his own way to try out for the team, played pickup ball, got every rebound in the gym. He made the team. He never really played much. He he was great in preseason, but then he never played because the guys I mentioned were all playing ahead of him. And then they traded him. They didn't even know what he was. He goes on to be like a four-time defensive player of the year uh, after he left us. So we we got rid of our entire front line at a time when front lines were still a thing in the NBA. And, uh, <laughs> and for, for a bunch of guards and a, and a journeyman center and Isaac Austin who, who, who just never panned out there. So that's kind of why that never materialized. And Rashid was there the year before, right? I'm just double-checking here because – yeah, yeah, no, Rashid went first. Rashid was 95, right. 96. They traded yeah. Rashid Wallace after his rookie year <laughs> because they thought he was emotionally too volatile. And they traded him for uh they traded him for um Rod Strickland. All right, so give me your impression of the Rashid part of it, because as a young guy, like he was different, but the thing I've always heard about Rashid even as an older guy, he was different. You know, I mean, he was battling, he was combative. We went out to Portland. I always thought it was really interesting that he got a million technicals because he was just going to be pissed at everybody. And then he goes to Detroit and he's just stopped getting technicals because he respected everybody. But if you were there at the beginning, I've never heard a teammate say a bad word about Rashid. Like every guy I've ever talked to that played with him, like, no, nah, man, like if you knew him and you were around him, you would love him. 100%. And here's, here's how I'll sum him up. He's the most unselfish elite level talent I've ever been around in my life. He did not care maybe to his own detriment about becoming a superstar. He, but even though he had superstar talent, all he wanted to do was win. He just, cause that's all he had known. He was on the best high school team in the country in Philly. He was on a, you know, a, a, a top team in college, Carolina. He was a fourth pick in the draft. I believe I got that right. Fourth, I think. All yeah. he knew was winning. That's all he wanted to do. That dude was, was he always made the right pass. He, he took extra shots after practice. He hit the weight room. Now, he would leave the facility, and I'm pretty sure at that time, as most guys his age would do, he'd go back to the farm and probably play video games all day. And then he'd come back to practice the next day and do it all over again. 
And I'm watching this guy saying, okay, he's a rookie, but I could already see, and he, and he went on to become this. He was maybe the best low post defensive player in the league at, as his, as his career went on and he got into Portland and Detroit. Um, he was, he turned, he was a phenomenal offensive player, great hands, great IQ for the game. You name it. He just didn't have that. Like, I want to be first team all league. I want to be MVP. Cause that's going to require taking 18 to 20 shots and putting up numbers. And, and like that just never, ever entered his mind. It was not part of his DNA. So as a result, some people look at him and think that nah, is an underachiever. And I just completely have an opposite of view of that. I don't think that at all. I think he was a guy that just literally wanted to be just more like a team guy. And, and he didn't care about that stuff as long as he was part of a winning team. And so that's always been my view on Rashid. I, I, anybody would ever say, you're, you know, you're picture Rashid, get, you're screaming at refs, be a volatile, getting teed up, getting tossed, or whatever it may be. Like, that's your impression of him, and you don't know anything about him. Washington completely overreacted to his, the number of technicals he got as a rookie and stuff like that, and his reputation he was building with the refs. It was, it was, it was definitely a thing. There was something there with the refs and him. Um, and he, he, you know, he, was, he was creating that because he was very emotional. But he was so young. It's like, can't you guys figure out a way to rein that in? Because you're talking about you're talking about a, probably a first-team all-league caliber defensive player, a, a phenomenal offensive player that maybe is a little bit unselfish. But um, can't you figure that out? But they just panicked. They panicked. They thought, oh, this guy, he's, he's just too he's too emotional. We can't control him. So we're gonna we're gonna get rid of him after one year. It was it was insane. It was an insane decision. And I love yeah. Strick. And Strick gave us good years. And I loved playing with him. And, he, and to this day, we're friends. And I did love that. And, and, you know, that was great. But when you have a young six eleven dude like that, that's that good. You got to figure out a way to get, to get that part under control and, and see what you have here. So to trade that guy after one year, think about that. That's insane. Yeah. You can't be trading him at, at 22 years old. Um, and I, I think I've always had, like, I've had a theory named after him, the Rasheed Wallace theory, because I think he should have been better because I think that much of his game his adaptability, yeah. the fact that he could shoot, you know, he was actually built. Yeah. If he came along later on, I mean, he really wanted to take over games and shoot 18, 20 shots a game and really hone in on the three point numbers that probably would have gone up just because of the spacing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then he's going, Hey, I got a ring and made 160 million. So you're gonna tell me I did it wrong. You know? So like I, I've, I've always understood that part of it. And when I didn't understand him and I'd watch it and be like, what is this guy's deal? But then the great thing about ESPN is getting to know so many of you guys. And I'd be like, Hey, what was, what's up with Rashid? And I, no one, no one has ever had a bad word to say about him as a teammate. So I just knew it would no, be. No, no. And you won't, and you won't get it from me either. And, um, you know, he's done a lot with coaching kids and stuff. He's, he's dedicated his life to the game, even helping kids in that way. All right. That's actually a perfect segue. Cause you mentioned Juwan, who's doing a great job at Michigan. I know that you have, whether it's interest, I don't know the long-term goals, but have you talked to him and what he's done there and, and how that, maybe inspires you or impacts you on maybe making a decision to do, cause you've been coaching AAUs for years. I'm just wondering kind of where your head's at with that seeing a guy like that do what he's doing at Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Look, man, I'm, I'm thrilled for his success and I'd I'd love Juwan. He was one of my favorite teammates ever. And, um, you know, it's, it's ironic because he brought Phil Martelli up there who had just, you know, I've known Phil forever. He coaches St. Joe's in the big yeah. five. I've known Phil forever. And so that was, and he had just gotten fired from St. Joe's after a long run, but he had finally hit some mediocre teams and the alumni wanted him out and they, they got rid of him. And you talk about a perfect guy to bring with you to Ann Arbor because, you know, and this is what I have said, look, there is no question in my mind. 
I, 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 I would, would, would be very successful as a college coach. And I desperately want the opportunity. Unfortunately for me, I don't have the name of a Juwan Howard. And I know he put in time as an assistant coach in the NBA, but anybody that would tell me that I'm going to say, if you think being an NBA assistant in any way, shape or form is preparing you to be a college coach, then you, you just don't understand how different that world is. It has nothing to do with it, but that's on his resume. I don't have that on my resume. I've been a broadcaster for all these years and I've done a lot of coaching and I know I can coach. I know I could recruit. I know, I know, but what you need is that guy next to you to show you and how quickly you will pick it up on your own, but you need somebody to show you how to run a program. And that's what Phil Martelli did for him. So he gives nuts and bolts, day-to-day operations. This is what we need to do today to run this program, because that's the thing that I have, you know, I've never done it. Juwan never did it. He didn't know what to do. They just knew that this is, this guy's, this guy is an alum. He's really bright. He's been in coaching. He wants to coach. He's got a big name. It's going to help with recruiting. We want this guy. And then we're going to bring in the support staff around him for that other stuff that he doesn't know what to do. And look how quickly it's coming together there. That's kind of what I would do. If that's like my vision for it. Unfortunately, I don't have the name of a Juwan Howard and and it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's hurt me with some opportunities. I thought it would have been perfect for So. My answer to that is, yes, I des- desperately still want to do it. There is zero doubt in my mind that that's my calling and that's what I should be doing, and I want to do that. Um, will I ever get the opportunity? I don't know. And people say, oh, well, just go be an assistant for a few years. I'm like, come on. I'm 54. Uh, it's The time's got to be now to go be a head coach. I can't walk away from something that I've built for 20 years in broadcasting at, at something like that to go be an assistant, take an enormous pay cut, and just let's hope that it turns into something. I couldn't justify that even to my family. Like that, that just, that wouldn't be smart. So I'm at the point, like, I hope that something would, would somebody give me a legitimate opportunity. And I've had interviews and I finished second, you know, three times. So it's like, you know, it just, they're afraid to pull the string on a guy with quote, no coaching experience, which Ryan, I've always laughed at because when somebody says no experience, I say, well, I don't know. What is 30 years being around the NBA at the, you know, at the highest level of the game? Does that count for anything? And plus coaching, another 500 games of high level AAU, like a national circuit AAU, like none of that counts as experience. It's just thought uh, you weren't in a program doing that job every day. So therefore you don't have experience. Like that's, what's held me back. And so ADs and search firms have had a very difficult time just pulling the trigger on that. And so I, I've come close, but you know, at the same time, I realize at some point it probably will be past that time and I'll forget about it, but that's, I'm not there now. Yeah, look, I hope it works out because I know it's something that that you've wanted. We've talked about it, and you know, I I don't, I know the search firm part of it is I, I don't I, I kind of know about it, but I don't know all of it. It seems kind of weird, but then when people get mad at ads for hiring search firms, it's like, well, what are you getting paid for? It's like, okay, but the, if the ad hires somebody and then it doesn't work out, then everybody's mad at him. Well, how come you didn't vet him? At least he can then say, hey, well, I paid a search firm all this money, so they're they're responsible for it too. So the whole. The whole part of it. But I think the more guys like Juwan and, and maybe people were ridiculous thinking that like former players couldn't just step right in and, and, and make a difference right away. So maybe it's evolving. Maybe it's turning. I mean, the NBA's had multiple examples of ex-players just stepping right in and being head hey, coaches. That's, so that's that's a great point. And there's no question. Whenever a guy gets a job, I am I'm the, I am on my knees praying for their success because it could lead to that. I mean, Penny Hardaway has had success at Memphis and Penny Hardaway coached the high school team in some AAU basketball. He had no other experience coaching. That's basically what I've done. And, but you know, he's the biggest name to ever come out of that school. So he, you know, they, they wanted him, and there he is. And he's a pipeline because of his AAU connections. And 
so that that's the deal. So, um, you know, I look at, uh, you know, Patrick Ewing at Georgetown, like guys, guys that played in the league, um, you know, th- that haven't had experience as an college assistant or anything like that have, have had success. And I, I'm absolutely pulling for those guys because you hope it happens. The search firm component is tough because they've got a very stiff mindset about it. They've got their list of guys they're trying to help. They are going to stiff arm you and keep you out of the search. Because as soon as that AD calls that search firm, the AD literally disappears until the, the search firm provides him with three candidates to interview. And then the AD, along with the search firm, will then make that last decision. But if you can't even get into the mix because the search firm won't allow it, like you can't even get, you can't even communicate with the ADs. Like there are guys that I've known where I go, I know this guy, we were connected, you know, and it's like, you can't even get, because they don't, they don't want any accountability. No, I wrote a check to the search firm. And now it's a CYA mentality. And now I'm good because they're going to recommend this coach. And if he stinks and he's got to get fired in three years, it's because of search firm, not because of me. And that's totally what it is. You still get a few old school ADs that go, you know what? I don't need one. I'm going to do it myself. And that's what I have tried to find programs that that's going to be the case. Cause I feel like if I can just get in the room with this AD and he can hear me and hear my passion, hear my knowledge and hear my plan and my vision and who I'm going to bring in here to help me and everything else, I, I, I got a real shot. But the, the, what I'm, what I've run into repeatedly is the search firm just keep me out of the mix because they've got their list of assistant coaches or head coaches that are going to bump up a level or assistant coaches getting their first job. They've got their list of guys and I'm not on that list because I'm, I didn't, I didn't follow that pipeline. You know what I always say, Ryan, this is funny. I say this to people, I'm like, you know why like this guy that maybe I'm going after a job with is, is, is been in an assistant coach for 15 years because he wasn't good enough to play beyond college. I played 10 years professionally and then it led me into this, or I would have gone the, the uh, graduate assistant route. And I would have done all that. I'd probably be coaching a power five school right now. I, that's, that's really what I believe. But Hey, my career took me to a different place. And then I had young children that I kind of needed to raise. And then finally I got to the point like, okay, I want to do this. And I really thought the opportunities would be a little bit more plentiful to at least get into the conversation. It's been, it's been difficult. Yeah. I can't imagine. Um, because it's, it is, it's a grind trying to even get in. I want to spend a few minutes before we let you go on what's going on now in the league. How many teams yep. right now do you feel comfortable with saying, hey, if that team wins the championship, it's not a surprise? I think the Lakers, Nets, Sixers are in there. Is there anybody else? And and feel free to take this in any direction you want on how many teams you think legit are like scary right now. Yeah, like I think I think you have to include Brooklyn. Um there's there's just there's just too much talent there. What do you see that with them? That, like right now when you watch so, them, like what's the thing that jumps out? Well, obviously Durant's been out, so it's a little different. But what I what I started to see was, okay, the, the biggest question about it, they seem like they have figured out, which is who's, whose team is it? Whose offense is it? And it's clearly James Harden's offense because that's what they had to establish. Now, because Kevin Durant, that's not even a factor because he can go get 25 to 30 so efficiently and so easily he doesn't care who's going to handle the ball more and who's making decisions. He's like, whatever, I'm good. That's why. But for Kyrie and Harden, I thought this could be a real issue. And it hasn't been because it's clearly James Harden's team. Kyrie slides into that. Just let me go be a scorer role, which was when he was at his best in Cleveland, take all of the leadership off the table, take the responsibility, making guys better off the table, 
just let me go stay in my lane and go score. That's when he was at his best in Cleveland and he, and, and it worked and they won a championship together. And so he's back in that lane. And so once they figured that out, I said, okay, that was a big thing. They got that figured out. Now it's okay. This team can be so good offensively. Some nights, there's just no way you can come up with enough defensively to scheme for all of that or have enough personnel to do it. Nobody can deal with that. So, you know, I look at them and say, there's no question that they can win the Eastern conference and, and win a championship. They have to be on that list. Now they're obviously defensively, not very good. There's some nights I watch them and go, okay, they're trying a little bit harder. Other nights I watch them and go, okay, they, they don't care about that at all. They're going to win this game. 135, 132, and they don't care. Other nights I go, Oh, somebody fought over a screen. That's a, that's an improvement. So I, you know, it's, it's like incremental increases. I don't think they even talk about it much there because they're so good offensively. So I think they're on the list. Sixers, you know, actually, would I be shocked if the Sixers won it all? Yes, I would be. I would be shocked. Because as so you like Brooklyn more. Have, you like Brooklyn more right now in the East. In terms of winning a championship, I would have to put Brooklyn, yes. Their ceiling okay. is higher than Philly's. All right, so stay where you were going with Philly before I jumped in. Well, I was going to say it was like, okay, so they had this guy in Embiid, which is such a unique way to attack teams. I mean, he's the closest thing I've seen, the way he's playing this year, to Olajuwon at, at his prime. I, I just think... He's so overwhelming physically. Um, he's improved his decision-making in the post. He doesn't over-dribble and turn the ball over as much as he used to. He seems fully committed to being great. For the first time in his career, he wants to dominate you every night, and he's doing it in a way that plays to his strengths. And I think that's coach, the coaching staff has something to do with that. I think his own maturity level changed, and something's different about him this year. And he is, he's all about being locked in every night. It's been really great to watch. So he's unique. Nobody has one of those. So that, that's going to always get them in the mix. But then I look at their, their next guys. I don't know if I can count on Tobias Harris to give them 20, 20, 21 a night in a seven game series with any of those teams. Like, you know, you get deeper in the second, third round of the Eastern conference playoffs. He has had some mystifying head scratching. Where were you moments in the playoffs? So I don't know that. And obviously Ben Simmons, he at times can be so good and you're just like, wow. And then there are nights he doesn't even, you don't even notice he's on the floor in the fourth quarter of a game. So I say to myself, they get into a situation where teams lock it in on this team for four five, six, seven games in a row and making adjustments and how they're going to guard and bead. Can you really count on those guys when you're going to need to? That's why I think the ceiling's higher for Brooklyn um, than Philly, but they're, they're clearly to me, the two best uh, in that, conference and then you out west you got the lakers you know I, I guess the clippers i would say yeah they need to be in the mix they, they would they would give i think the lakers a hell of a series in a best of seven and i actually think utah is legit now ultimately is is that enough to beat those two teams in a seven game series I'm not so sure about that but i would not be shocked if they beat the clippers if they avoid the lakers and play the clippers like in the second round would not be shocked to see lakers utah conference final okay what do you like about utah because i agree uh, the number one thing I like about them is they 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 play a very simple style of 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 how they operate offensively with just ball, high ball screen, high ball screen, dribble handoff. That's all they really run. But every single guy on that team makes great, quick, decisive decisions. The ball does not is never like over dribbled. It's never held too long. It's just dribble handoff or ball screen, get into the lane, start kicking it, swinging it, 
and make this make these defensive teams catch up to the ball, and it's always going to end up in the hands of a guy that can shoot it. And and it's just their decision making and chemistry and the way they make the extra pass really tough to defend. I mean, they're doing things on an unprecedented level shooting the basketball. I think about the, those early Golden State teams, which we were like, oh my God, it's the greatest shooting team I've ever seen in my life. You think about those early teams before Durant got there, that those teams were making 13 threes a night. And we thought this is the greatest shooting exhibition we've ever seen. The Jazz are making 17 a night. I mean, that's the level that they're shooting at. And then they've got two perfect players for the middle. Go bear in favors. Ball screen dive, ball screen dive, ball screen dive, ball screen dive. Every time, every time is hard. Every time is committed. Even though Gobert might not get it four out of five times, he does it. He dives just as hard on the next one. And so you've got a guy that committed to playing that way. And he's not like, there are centers that will do that twice. And the third time they don't get it. They're like, okay, I'm just going to slip every time. I'm not going to set the screen anymore because I'm, I'm tired of the energy I'm expending. Gobert is committed to run out there, full sprint, screen, full sprint to the rim. Oh, okay, I got to go do it again? Okay, I'm going to go do it again now for Ingles. Full sprint, screen, full sprint, dive. And, and it's just great to watch. Favors is the same thing. So they've got this perfect mix of guys that are playing just absolutely flawless basketball offensively. And by the way, Ryan, the other thing, they can beat you on the other end. Like If they have a night they don't shoot well, their top five defensive rated team in the league, they can win a game if they have to, 102 98. And that's what I like about them a lot. So I think they're legit, man. I don't think this is a great story. I think this is a team that actually can, can, can cause some damage and really surprise people in the postseason. Yeah. I mean, all that makes sense. I love watching them. I love that. Not only is it the high screen rule, which is kind of what everybody's doing, some variation of it. And then when it gets stuck, they'll run something new to get away from it. But they can initiate it with like three or four guys. That's what's crazy is oh, that they can oh, run oh, it with you, Mitchell. You, you, you hit it on the head. They've got four elite ball screen players with it's Mitchell, unbelievable. Clarkson, right. Ingles, right? Conley. Um, uh, Mike Conley, yeah, there's one to leave it out. They've got four elite ball screen decision makers. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's just, so you're 100% right. I actually did a breakdown on that exact topic a couple weeks ago on them. And you're right. So that's. The other thing, you know, you're funny. You said everybody's kind of doing that. You're 100% right. Every team runs the same stuff. The difference is who's running it and what kind of decisions are we making? And and that's what separates teams because they're all running the same stuff. Some guys just have better players running it. And then some teams have really good players, but they make terrible decisions. So it's never really that hard to guard. This team has guys that can run it. And then they also have incredibly high IQs with what they're looking at and the way the ball starts to move. So they're a, they're a, for me this year, they may be the, my favorite team to watch on a nightly basis. I'm right there with you. You know, I, I was watching them again, even in the Philly loss where I was just impressed with both teams. I go, Hey, you know, people are going to have to stop. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying like, Hey, I'm off the Lakers, but just to open your mind up to the idea that the jazz could come out of the West, I don't think should be as complicated as people make it out to be. And and again, because it's LeBron and plenty of us who have ever said, ah, maybe not this year or whatever. And the guy just proves you wrong every single year. If you go against him, uh, not that I've gone against LeBron every year, but there are just times you're like, all right. And the Lakers look terrible right now. I don't care. I don't care how bad they look. They could lose 20 games in a row. And if Davis and LeBron are healthy, start of the playoffs, I'd probably still picking them. But just the idea that the jazz could come out of the West, I feel like that in itself feels like this bold statement. And when you watch, them and you look at all the numbers you're like i don't think it's that crazy and that's kind of where i'm at right now with it 
No, I completely agree with you. I think I, I made a joke before the year when the Lakers signed on uh, this is before the Nets did what they did. But uh, I said, when the Lakers signed Harrell and Schroeder, I said, well, why are we playing a season? Let's just play eight games and start the playoffs because there's nobody is going to beat that team. Well, I mean, it's just such a waste of time. You know, I, mean, I mean, every year you feel like it's a foregone conclusion. Like you think, okay, one of these three teams can win it. This was probably the greatest foregone conclusion of any year when they added those guys. I said, they're not, no one is beating this team. Yeah. And then the Nets did what they did. And I said, okay, I wasn't convinced. I was skeptical. And I said, let me see what this looks like. And, you know, I still need to see more with all three of those guys. Cause you know, Durant was hurt. They've had guys miss nights and I need to see what that looks like. All three of those guys play like 10 straight games and say, okay, okay. That'll give me a better gauge. Cause now obviously that's changed that conversation about the Lakers. And I think the jazz have changed that conversation. I, I go, this is a team legitimately that can find themselves in the finals. And I, I, I believe that and nothing's, nothing's really changed my mind. Now, the only thing that, you know, would have it be they get to that point and it's the conference finals. And for whatever reason, you know, a couple of guys just aren't quite ready for that stage and they don't play well in that series. But I don't know. I think they might be past that. I think they're so collectively bought into each other. They believe that they belong there and they can be there. And that's what really, that's half the battle is believing that you should, you know, you deserve it and you, you've earned it. And like, you're worthy of this, this, uh, you know, this opportunity. And I think they're there now. Awesome as always, Legs. Thanks. Hey, anytime, Ryan. You got it, man. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus Live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. Before we get to a couple of these, Kyle, uh, thanks for the work on the bonus Sunday pod. And for those that are asking how the schedule works, I'll reiterate it to this audience that when I go on with Bill on Sundays now, that'll mean Tuesday, Thursday for me. When I don't do a Sunday, it'll be Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So that's how we're going to do it for a little while. It's going to be kind of like every other week for a bit because... I think we were together for so long and then we still have a ways to go with the basketball. We just, we probably both don't want to talk to each other for two and a half hours every Sunday. So, um, that might be his preference more than mine. <laughs> now I've made it weird. Like I'm talking about there's, there's a problem between us and obviously Kyle, maybe you should chime in here as the arbiter of this. There's no issues. I just think we're trying to space them out. Correct. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what the interesting part of this is no matter what I always work on Sunday. So, it's all the same to me. Yeah, there you go. Kyle didn't care. No Kyle's, drinking on Sundays. How much does that screw up your uh, your routine? Are you a big Sunday drink guy? Yeah, I used to be. I definitely used to be. It was like a full day after Saturday. Like, it was like Monday was the day that you dreaded. But then it's like, oh, Sunday. Because people want to do stuff. They want to go you know, mess around on Sunday. But I got to be like, oh, shit, hold on. It's Now it's it's 12 o'clock, which is fine. But I think we're recording at 4 today. So I think I should probably be out of here by 1.30, 2 o'clock. 
And, you know, I don't know. You just don't want to fuck things up. And it's easy. You stop to drinking at one o'clock on Sundays if you have to work is what you're saying. Exactly. And like, you know, that that's sucks. pretty responsible, buddy. Well, it depends on what time, because sometimes it's like, oh, if it's a good game now that it's NBA, it's like, all right, we'll go at seven o'clock after the last game. But then Bill will be like, you know what? Fuck it. This game sucks. I'm not going to watch it. It's four o'clock now. And it's like fucking red alert. I got to get home. Like, you know what I mean? So, cold shower. Yeah, whatever. But I'm happy to have a job, whatever. (laughs) No, I, no, that's great. (laughs) That's, that's amazing. I never, um, we didn't, we didn't drink on Sunday in college. I know some colleges do it and just, but we didn't, we didn't do that. We didn't sit around and tank beers and watch the NFL on Sunday. Um, but by the time Saturday rolled around, everybody was kind of burnt out from Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So Saturdays where I went to school, especially with no college football, I mean, lacrosse kept it going for a little bit there, but, um, there was no, like, I'll hear about other guys that went to school and they were like, oh my God, you know, Sundays used to be ridiculous out of Sunday fun day stuff. I'm like, it's yeah, wild card Sun- day. yeah, Sunday fun day didn't even, that term didn't even exist. Nobody had shirts or anything back when I, I mean, again, it was a long time ago now where I talking to myself, but Sunday was not. I mean, Saturdays were lame. By the time Saturday rolled around, we were kind of over it already anyway. So then Sunday, you didn't want to keep it going because you probably, you know, cleared the system. I guess my point with Sunday is the blank slate. So, you know, if you've got something that's looming on Sunday, it's not so much a blank slate anymore. That's what I mean. Yeah, I mean, for me, I had to entertain America for a decade. So, I mean, <laughs> Monday? No. <laughs> Give me a break. Okay, here we go. Uh, our man's checking in here. Thanks to nephew Kyle and Ryan for reading the email. Six one barefoot. Oh wow! All right, one ninety five. Thirty eight years old. Don't know my max, but I can do a few reps at two twenty five. Great, thank you. Just moved across the state, and I'm starting a new job. I've heard Ryan read multiple emails of people looking to meet new friends and they move to a new city. I'm the opposite. Every time I started a new job, I have random guys asking me to hang out. I'm not trying to sound like an ass, but I have a solid group of friends. I'm not really looking to add to it. I don't want people at my new place of work to think that I'm a total jerk, but I've always had problems with this in the past when I've switched jobs or departments in the past. At my previous job, I transferred departments and a guy I had known only a few days said he had two tickets to Jim Gaffigan and wanted to know if I would like to go with him. Wasn't really interested in hanging out alone with a person I had just met. But when I said I was busy, the guy, the guy seemed like he took it personally and didn't talk to me for a while. This kind of stuff has happened to me multiple times in the past. I want to get along with my coworkers, but I'm just not interested in hanging out with everyone outside of the workplace. I'm not sure if this makes me an oddball, but it is what it is. How do I adroitly, good use, uh, get out of the situations where coworkers want to spend time out of work without becoming the office jerk? It's already too late, man. They're already talking about you. They think you're a dick. And I think you kind of know it. And you're not changing. At 38, I'm not going to sit here and be like, here's some tips to be friendlier because you don't care. And I have groups where no one's added to the group since college. And we'll laugh. And be, like we have another guy who's Mr. Country Club and he's meeting everybody. He's saying hi. And, you know, he actually, I think, likes strangers more than he likes us sometimes. <laughs> and we're just like, wait, you're adding new friends? Like you're going on ski trips with guys you meet in your 40s? Like what's, the, what's that like? That's got to be weird. It's kind of a general theme of all the stuff that we've been talking about, where if it's a core guy, you can get away with more because you've just accepted each other at this point in your life, right? Um, when you could do the same thing, and if you're not a core guy and you're doing it with the new guys, and the new guys are like, what the hell is this guy deal? It's just a, a different level. It's kind of like the first few dates versus you know going to the bathroom with the door open when you're married. That's basically what it is. So you don't want to add anybody to the group, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I'm kind of like that at times. But I would say um, on this one, you know, how do you fix it? How do you do this? Well, you just, 
there's not really a fix. You've decided to tell everybody every place you've worked that you don't really want to hang out with them, and that's what you're going to be, and that's what they say to you behind your back, which isn't the worst thing to be called. I'm like, oh, that guy's kind of a dick. Doesn't want to be friends with anybody. I, too, would probably not go to a comedy show with a guy I had just met. Um, but I don't even know why you sent the email in a way, because I, I think you already know all of this stuff. Kyle, want to add add to this? What is this guy giving off pheromones or something? Is he fucking Danny Cordray in the office? Like, wherever he goes, people are just, they, they're just drawn to him. What does this guy look like? Yeah, is this the coolest guy that's ever emailed the show? I'm just so show? tired of people trying to bring me to shit as soon as I'm I walk so in a room. fucking <laughs> cool, and people won't leave me alone. No, it's a great call by you, because it's like everywhere I go, people want want to hang out. They just want I'm a like, piece of it. All right. Yeah. What are you, a fucking stuntman? Where do you work? So I, I don't have a problem with the guy. I don't have a problem with anything he's saying. I'm just going like, there's no there's no real solution on this, right? I well, oh, speaking I just, of, I feel weird because like <laughs> I'm in the opposite position now. All my friends have left my place of work, and so now now I have like no friends here. And I wish people would come up to me. You want strangers? All right. So if you guys see Kyle walking around at any point in the LA area, just go up and ask him <laughs> if you want to be best friends immediately. Speaking of, this segues in perfectly because it's not a life advice, but I saw the email, so let's go. Um, thank you, Kyle, for pointing this one out. First time writing into the show, I was with my girlfriend in Manhattan Beach on Sunday and just so happened to run into Ryan. He was parking and putting money in the meter and I was about to say hi. I normally never go up to anyone, but figured why not? I went to approach him and he turned his face, making eye contact with me. He gave me the meanest look I've ever seen. It looked like he was in the ludicrous music video for Get Back or something like that. Side note, Ryan was rocking some, um, these are, yeah, so Legends clothing made me some custom gear just for me so they they came with a logo and everything so it's a logo and then it says rslo some of you may think it's lame i think it's fucking awesome and shout out to legends for doing it for me um they are uh they were a gift from the guys over there so they don't make them to sell or anything like that so he said more importantly can we get these on the ringer merch site if so i'll take a medium sorry we don't we don't sell them no nope, he can't seem to get them to anyone so yeah, nobody's got them. There's only like a few ever made. And I, I gave one pair to my brother and Matt Bushman claiming a pair. And so, you know, we'll see. We'll see. But the stuff is really, really nice. And it's great to work out. And so, yes, that's what I was wearing. So where, where are we going with this? Oh, anyway, so Ryan looked like an absolute asshole dressed in all black. <laughs> uh, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember giving anyone a mean look. I remember when I was going to Cowherd hotel to meet with him and we had breakfast cowherd called me at eight in the morning on sunday and says hey what are you doing right now i was like get my day started i was about to work out and he goes let's go power walk and at first my first response was okay how do i say no to this because i definitely don't want to do it but i'll be nice and then i was like no i go yeah i don't want to do that at all i was like i'm not doing that and he was like okay all right then i was like what do you mean power walk he goes yeah we'll go down to the strand you know, like an hour go back and forth I'm like now nah, yeah i don't want to do that power walk what am i 100 i don't want to do that so he's like oh what are you gonna lift i was like yeah probably i don't know like there's i watch games i lift i sit at home and write sometimes i stare and he so anyway that's what i did i went to uh meet at cowherd to have breakfast after his power walk and after i worked out so yeah i was dressed in workout gear and by the way if you're in manhattan beach Look, I don't even care about the Manhattan Beach part of it. I was saying to somebody the other day, I think I've been in workout shorts and hoodies from Legends for six months. It's probably a year. So um, I guess I looked like an asshole in workout attire. All right. 
Because I realized he was probably just in a rush to get food with Cowherd after spending a stressful morning at car dealerships. The lesson to be learned is that people are dealing with shit. It's important not to judge. I, I was in a great mood. I just bought a brand new car and I was meeting up with Cowherd, who I like bullshitting with. So, yeah, I don't know. I wear workout gear when I walk around town. What's up? All right. We also had a lot of people chime in on the buying car thing after Bill and I did our segment on that. There's a slight correction that that Bill and I should have made in the moment, but we didn't because we just got on a roll. If you're buying and you're holding onto the car for a really long time and the APR is impacted by the down payment, then yes, then I would be okay with a down payment. Because if you're leasing a car, but you want to buy the car after you lease, that's actually terrible. But if you're in a situation where you can lease the car, keep it for three to four years, and then you go, okay, now I'm getting another car. Some people do that. Some people are very into their cars. Some people look at a car and saying, I don't want any kind of payment, and I'm going to drive it into the ground, and I'm going to get a car every 15 years. Nobody's wrong in this. You do whatever you're going to do. But for Bill and I to give advice and then not mention that it's also a lease, because I've just never understood if you're going to do a lease, but you're expecting another car in another three to four years because you're in a situation where that's okay, your budget allows for it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't put any money down on a lease ever with that kind of stuff. And always be willing to walk away. Real estate, cars, wives. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm throwing that in there. All right, we should probably do one that's a little bit more, I don't know, serious? What are you feeling right now, Kyle? Oh, I got one for you. This is a good one. All right, last one. 35-year-old American expat. You know what expat means, Kyle? Uh, I got an idea. Um, well, hold on. You know Actually, what? no, I don't. That's a great example of how to define expat. I had read it forever and didn't quite. I was like, yeah, well, do I actually know what the hell this means? It's just basically an American living abroad, right? Oh, I got it. So you could, you could understand it in the context of the sentence. But, you know. If you're not sitting there on dictionary.com. Oh, Belichick either cut you or maybe you 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 didn't get um or he was in like a group called like the Patriots who like, you know, get a little riled up about the Constitution or something and, and now he left it. I don't know. I didn't know I didn't know exactly what I had no idea what he was talking about, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a broader term of anyone living outside the orbit, but you went like you thought Riche Caldwell was checking in from Stuttgart. <laughs> That's right. Okay. All right. I don't think it's uh I don't think it's him. All right. Five eight one sixty five pull-ups max. Bad number. If you weigh one sixty-five pull-ups is low. But he given himself an eight out of ten. You know what I like is when guys are doing the self-assessments there, it'll be five, but maybe a six, or like, hey, I'm six, but on a good day a seven. No one ever goes, I'm a seven, but I can look like a five sometimes. People don't do that very often. And sometimes we all look like fives. That's a good point. Sometimes every day. Been struggling with uh, some of the rules in this country and the general strictness and fickiness of the people in the culture. I'll give you a few examples to illustrate my point. I live in a big apartment complex. When I take out the garbage, neighbors will watch me as if they were garbage umpires. There's no reason for this. I separate my garbage properly. It's not like I'm throwing the aluminum cans in a proper waste bin. Oh, in the paper waste bin. See, I already went international there. I said proper. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, all right, so he's not throwing the cans in the paper. It's really strange to have a silent person standing there watching your every move. It's not just me. This happens to other people, too. I haven't said anything yet, but I do want to tell them to go away or mind their own business. All right. Another garbage example. I was walking through town, had a plastic food wrapper that I wanted to dispose of. Think something the size of like a potato chip bag. I saw a set of garbage bins alongside the road. So I threw the small paper 
uh, the wrapper into the plastic bin. Out of nowhere, an older man pops out and asks me if I live here. I said no. He then started raising his voice, was telling me that I'm not allowed to throw away trash in these bins, that I guess they were designated for that particular building. I said something along the lines of, it's a tiny piece of plastic, man. This isn't a big deal. And then I started walking away and he continued yelling at me. He went into the bin, grabbed the, grabbed the wrapper, caught up to me and stuck it in my hand. I just kept walking. Oh, I didn't fucker. bother to say anything back or argue with the guy. Also, the general strictness of around walking paths, crosswalks, bike lanes. I've been yelled at for slightly deviating outside the boundaries in the bike lanes or not crossing the road at the spot where there's a crosswalk, even if there's no cars in sight. I've got good field awareness. Awesome. <laughs> so I'm never obstructing people or traffic if this happens. I've been yelled at a few times for parking my bike in places that aren't in the designated parking bike spots. Keep in mind, I'm conscientious when I do this, if I lean my bike against a tree or a post, I make sure it's never in the way. And I only do this in situations when I'm in a hurry and the bike will be there for 10 minutes max. Also, I've been yelled at for not turning my car off while I'm spending two freaking minutes to get my GPS situated before I get going. You're not allowed to leave your car running over here. Again, I'm cognizant of this rule occasionally and will forget to turn off the car while I'm getting myself situated. Even had a guy knock on the window when I was in a grocery store parking lot waiting for the heat to get hot. I'm frustrated with the overall enforcement obedience of every single little inconsequential rule over here. Thus far, I haven't lashed out back at anyone, but really want to tell some of these people, either mind their own business, chill out, man, fuck off, worry about something else, or maybe even, well, that's a pretty tough word to call them. We're not going to, I'm not going to advise that one. Uh, I speak German well enough for people to mostly understand me. And I mostly understand them as an American guest in their country. Is it okay to occasionally tell off these people or must I always bite my tongue and just deal with it? Come back, dude. <laughs> yeah. Why do you live there? I mean, you left that part out. So it has to be something. If you said you're not in the military, it has to be something that's worth your while. But if it is this constant hassle, I mean, look how many things we touched on. Garbage, to recycling, um, crosswalks, bike lanes, issues, bike parking, idling car. We're at six. Kyle, you couldn't handle it there. If you were stationed in Heidelberg, you'd be back. You wouldn't even, you'd, you'd no. leave before the lease was up. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's also like, you know, do I want to be the ugly American? But I started getting upset for this guy. And it's like, wait, wait, that is an ugly American thing to be like, hey, fuck you, man. It's like, no, you're there. That's how it is. Like, but yeah, just bounce. I would have bounced. Bounce, dude. I would have bounced. Well, he obviously has to be there for a reason. He must like it. Like, I actually love visiting Germany, uh, but I mean, it was, I was 18. We were, we were drinking beer the entire time and it was unbelievable. Um, it's one of the best two weeks I think I've ever had in my life, which is pretty cool because in the moment I was like, I don't does life get better than this? And we just had a blast. It was like a bunch of us and, you know, we'd already kind of graduated, which was weird. So there wasn't really much. We like no one. Imagine going on a high school trip with kids that have already graduated and they're all waiting to go away to college. Like none of us were going to listen to anything. Um, and then I hooked up with that biker gang. So that was, that was kind of cool because it worked out. And I was in uh, Oberbeugen, which was close to Wenglingen. Um, if any of you guys are, are curious about that, but, um, Let's think here. I, I just don't know. I don't know. You, you're not going to win any of these arguments. None of them. And I think it's a good reminder that, like, think of, think of wherever you've been. Maybe you've been vacationing somewhere. Maybe you're in New York City. Like, I always say this as a joke because nobody ever gets mad at, like, anybody being mad at, like, somebody from Finland. 
But like you walk around Times Square and it'd be like this monstrous couple with a huge boy named Gantz or something. <laughs> and he's fucking enormous and he's six six and the mom played volleyball and they've got like maps out and they're just like in the way the whole time. But nobody's <laughs> ever gonna get mad at anybody from Finland. Like some of my best friends are from Finland. But there there can be things that you would see as your everyday where you're like, what the hell are you doing? Now Times Square is a bad example because, you know, other than bubblegum shrimp, I don't even know why you're there. But it's um it's like anything like where I used to live in, in, you know, all the different travelers, all the different foreigners that we would have on Martha's Vineyard. And you just be like, what the hell are you doing? So basically, that's who you are in whatever village that you live in Germany. You you are wrong all the time. Now, Kyle and I agree with you. This seems ridiculous. Most of the people listening to this, I'm sure, are mostly Americans other than shout out to New Zealand and Australia. We have. You know, we're on the same page, but this is a pointless fight. It's pointless. Like, yeah, you could yell at a couple of guys. Not, nothing, none of this is going to change. This is their culture. You are in it. And I would say adapt a little bit better. That's about the only way. If you're going to keep living there, you can drive yourself crazy. You might be right about all of this stuff. The crosswalk thing can get really weird some places, but I mean, that'll be city by city. There's times where I think in Boston, we just run all over the place. Like we don't, we don't wait for the crosswalk, especially if you're downtown. You're just like, all right, I'm crossing, I'm crossing the street. There's other, other cities where you try to do that stuff. And they're like, what the hell are you doing? So that's not even just an American thing. That can be city to city. So here you are in this country that is, you know, by nature rigid. And um, I don't, I don't know. You're going to drive yourself crazy. I mean, if you're sitting here complaining about this stuff now and you're 35, you either move or you start throwing garbage in your garbage bins. Kyle, where are you with the dog shit in somebody else's bin? Ooh, see, like, that's where I think it, I mean, listen, I've thrown plenty of dog shit in plenty of random bins, but I do see I where, that. I do see where that could be like a crossing line. Like, yo, you want to throw your bottle in my fucking thing? I'm glad you're not throwing it on the ground because I watch so many people, um, throw stuff on the ground and bite my tongue. Cause like my mom was a big, like litter bug pointer outer. So it's like in my blood where I'm like, oh, you fucker. But like, I know that's not a good thing to fight over, but so like I'm I'm generally I think I'd be fine if I got garbage bins on the curb. You guys throwing anything in there? But yeah, like a pile of dog shit. I could see where that's like I I'm I'm straddling the line on that. I think there's times when uh, I think it's fine, and others where I would totally see why it's okay for you to be pissed off that somebody's throwing feces in your garbage bin that's going to sit there for a week. Every dog owner right now is going. What do you mean? There's nothing wrong with that. I should be allowed to throw my dog's shit in your garbage. I also see it with the long walk. It's like, hey, we, we just started the walk. We've got another, you know, 1.8 yeah. miles, but I'm not carrying this bag of shit. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm actually okay with it, even though I don't love it. Is that fair? That's exactly what I was trying to say yeah. in, in that yeah. many words. Yeah, because, I mean, it'll happen. And I go, yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to walk around with that. But if it was happening all the time, like if all of a sudden my... Yours the pit like, stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I think, <laughs> like, like bags I said, of shit in your bag. <laughs> I'm okay with it, but I don't love it. There you go. All right, that's the end of the pod. We have an incredible pod for you on Thursday. Uh, Nate Bargazzi is going to join us again. He's got a new special out on Netflix, and we're going to pitch him um, some stand-up bits. And I already ran this by him, and he's so not into it that it could go awful. But we're doing it. Anyway, so I don't care. We're doing it. And then... Um, and then TBD on an NBA player who could be traded. We're not sure. 
So we're hoping we're still going to have him. It is not Kyle Lowry for those reading his, uh, his convenient Instagram posts. We'll talk to you Thursday. <laughs>